Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's cast chat will feature Evan Henry. We hope you enjoy. Lovely and wonderful gentlefolk, welcome back to the Soundweavers podcast. It's cast chat day. And today I am joined by not one, but two wonderful co-hosts. So the first is obviously the brilliant and delightful and fantastic Dr. Blair Kerner, who is in the up window of my Zoom room. And we have someone different today. We don't have our normal co-host of Dr. Adam Paul Cordell, but we have a new member of the team who is going to be joining us. And that is the wonderful and incredible composer, Evan. And he is joining the team as our new editor, as Blair is moving into a new position. Let's get into the questions. I know a lot about you, but our listeners don't. Tell us about yourself. I'm a, I'm a composer. I live in Eugene, Oregon. I do a lot of music copy work. I'm a child of, of, of Eastman, so to speak, in that I grew up in Rochester, New York. A big part of my early formative educational experience was in the Eastman Community Music School. So I played trumpet. Um, I started playing when I was, I think, 12 or 13. I uh, started taking lessons with a guy through the community music school, West Nance. I, I was more interested in, in jazz at that point in my life. So I started playing along with like this collection of Ellington records that my neighbor gave me, you know, started listening to Charlie Parker in particular. I, I, I think I, my parents picked up a copy of, of the Charlie Parker Omni book and I just started reading through these things and playing along with the records. And that got me into the Eastman it's like a jazz lab band or something like that. I forget exactly yeah. what, what they called it, but it's the, it's the community school jazz band. You know, that really kind of kick-started my, my interest into jazz, really. So I started playing. So I was playing with a lot of local theater kinds of things and, you know, lots of local jazz bands and, and stuff like that, all, all community Rochester stuff. And when you're in the community music school and you're a city school student, if you're accepted into Eastman, they give you a full ride to go there. So I was accepted into the jazz department, spent a couple of years there, switched from the dark side to the darker side, I like to joke, and uh, went into the <laughs> composition department. A couple of years in a master's there, and then went to University of Pennsylvania for a year before I came back to Rochester to live in and working as a musician. And at the same time, I was teaching myself uh, piano because I had a, a, my parents had a piano. And I was also composing. I, I wrote, my, my first pieces were for the uh, trumpet ensemble at Eastman, actually. That's kind of where I got my, my composition start. Although I had been improvising kind of like forever since I was a kid. One of the things I would do that would really, really piss off my grandparents. Because <laughs> um, they, they had a piano in their house. And this piano had like, was missing like, 60% of the keys, like the whole no. middle octave was gone oh, on no. the piano. And like, it was only the extreme high register, the extreme low register and like sporadically notes kind of through the middle. You know, I can, I've always had this really active musical imagination. And uh, when I was going over to my grandparents' house a lot at that time, uh, I was playing uh, a lot of, you know, Mario on like, like the Super Nintendo. 
So what I was trying to do on this piano that has no middle octave was like play ideas that kind of like matched the side scrolling nature of this game. And it was, a, I mean, it was a real, real ugly stuff a lot of the times. I mean, a lot of banging, a lot of pounding because I didn't know anything about music, but I was just having fun at the time. You know, I mentioned this because I don't know, just, just I've always had this like kind of imagination for music, like associating picture and like ideas and concepts with like a musical sort of entity. I remember a lot of times when I was playing around with my friends and stuff, like I could not stop freaking like humming the music to whatever sort of imaginary thing that we were playing with. I, I don't know. I've just, I've never been able to shut up when it comes to music for, for, for better or worse, I suppose. And so that's where, so that's kind of what I guess led me down the road of, of music. I mean, I guess it's just a very natural sort of thing. I just wanted to jump in and mention a couple of other things that I know that you have done outside of the jazz and classical realm is you played in a uh, heavy metal band in Rochester. Well, sort of. I mean, I was the keyboard player for a band called uh, Mutter, which was a, a, a Rammstein cover band. That was that was a lot of fun, actually, because, um, you know, we played all over upstate New York in the couple of years that I was in the band. I think this was like 2014, 2015, something like that. And, um, you know, I didn't really know anything about how to produce what Flake does in the band. So, you know, I, I, I had the stems that one of their previous keyboard players made. And then I, I had this keyboard that I would play some other stuff on top of. And I had a laptop that was syncing. We had a, a laptop playing a pre-recorded track of samples that were taken from or produced in some way by some guy I didn't know that was synced up to a click track in the drummer's ear. So, because right, we're playing this, this audio track all the way through and we have to be, we have to be synced somehow. And if he's a little bit off, then, you know, we couldn't really change it, or at least I didn't know how to program it to, to change it to match what he was doing. And, and then we also had several patches where I was, that I was changing between to play all of the different, you know, samples and auxiliary, you know, kinds of effects that, that happen in the Rammstein songs. I remember one of my favorite shows was um, we played in the, I don't, I actually have no idea where in upstate New York we were playing. It was in the middle of the woods and like, it was for somebody, I think it was for some, some guy's birthday party or something, but the guys built the stage out of their, their garage in the backyard, like the day we were going to play there. So these people put together a, a, a stage, you know, basically with a bunch of plywood out of their garage and they and I and I remember they made uh, they smoked turkey out of a garbage can. It was garbage can turkey. Not a used one. And they you know you put a little hole in the top, you fill it with smoke, and you're smoking a turkey. And that turkey was freaking delicious, man. Holy moly! I remember the garbage <laughs> can turkey was amazing. That that was a that was a good show. We had a good crowd for that one. We're glad to have you join our ever-growing team, but I'm curious as to why you were interested in you know, joining Soundweavers and what piqued your interest in specifically offering the audio engineering side of help. I've always had an interest, you know, kind of a, a broad interest in, in being the background, you know, sort of technical guy for, for doing this kind of stuff. Um, and I just never really got much of a chance to, to, to really do it in school in any capacity. And, you know, I like 
editing, I guess. It's just, it's something that, that I'm into. I mean, you know, I'm a copyist, right? I'm a music copyist. I, I guess there's something like satisfying about taking somebody's stuff and, you know, having this very neutral position where you can just kind of be like, well, that worked and that's not so good. And let's get rid of that. I don't know. This, it's like, I guess there's a kind of power trip about it. It's like a very neutral, <laughs> very neutral not, power trip. Okay. I don't know. I, kind of, I just kind of like having that like little bit of authority. Can I just ask for, um, for people who may not know this, what does a music copyist do? In a like little nutshell, what do you do? Oh, well, Sibelius is the name of the notation software that a lot of, uh, composers will make their scores in these days. Well, there's a couple major ones. There's Sibelius, there's Finale. Um, I don't know anybody who does it in Muse score, but Muse score works pretty good. And Dorico, that's the other one. Oh yeah, people use Dorico now too, that's right. And, uh, but the old software was called Score. Uh, music engraving in these programs uh, sucks. It's terrible. It, it's <laughs> the worst possible thing if you're trying to create music because a lot of the time these programs will will do things that it thinks that you want but you don't want at all so you're spending a lot of time doing workarounds to do things that if you were just drawing it by hand you could do in like 10 minutes don't get me wrong i don't want to go back to drawing stuff by hand just the copying process and that is another a whole another can of worms a, a, a music copyist uh basically deals with all of the nonsense that goes into well music copyists in this day and age anyways deals with all the nonsense that goes into creating a digital engraving, which means like a lot of times a composer will will send me a score uh, in Sibelius or Finale, or, or they'll send me a PDF or they'll send me something handwritten. And if it's a digital file, I will go through and clean it up and make sure that all of the notation, you know, legible and is, is visually uh, appropriate. I'll check things like margins and spacing so you gussy it up yeah well yeah basically i make it professional yeah professional right if you were gonna send it off to a publisher this is what you would send them about technological things everyone on the team knows this is not my favorite thing to do but how did you gain your technological knowledge and experience that is needed for your role as sound engineer and was this more I think you've alluded to this already um I'm assuming this was more DIY than formal training oh god yeah totally I mean look I'm just I just don't learn very much in school I'm a lousy student <laughs> I'm absolutely terrible like <laughs> Most of the things I've learned in my life that are important, like audio editing and audacity or, or stuff like that, 
I, I just do because I have some like project or meme or something that I wanted to create. So I, you know, you spend a few hours looking up tutorials and, and, you know, just going in there and doing it and figuring it out. Um, you know, for, for me, the best teacher is, you know, is just doing things and experience. I did take a, a, a couple classes uh, in the Eastman computer music studio. You know, it's not like we really went over a whole, a whole lot in terms of audio editing, um, you know, detail. I mean, not, not, you know, certainly not for like a podcast setting. I mean, it was mostly a compositional class, right? It was mostly about how do you use the tools well enough so that you can get your ideas out there. And so, so the technical elements of it are, are all self-taught really. Well, let's be honest. That's what all of us have, right? Like the, the popular side of the music is automatically embedded in technology, but anything that's mm-hmm. formal training is a lot slower to catch up. Um, and I agree. Like I had to search out active pursuits of this type of thing. And I've actually did a lot more in film editing than audio, but obviously we have the yeah. ears, we have the mindset, we know what we're looking for. We have a, the capacity to get into the detail work and so forth. And that's why we hired you. If you can sit there and make something engraved, look absolutely professional and spend the time with Sibelius, <laughs> which is a pain in the butt, you can do similar for something like this. It just happens to be a different medium. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, this has also just been the whole point to some extent of this podcast of not everything you learn in school is actually going to be something you use in your career. Stuff like this, learning how to work with microphones, learning how to edit, that's all stuff that maybe there's a class that runs for six weeks or 10 weeks in some universities, but it's certainly not commonplace yet. And it's taking us a long time to catch up. So we kind of all have to do this as a DIY jump in and just make it work. Well, I mean, I think that brings up a kind of interesting point that I, I like to think about a lot, which is um, there's, there's an awful lot of weight that when we're, you know, looking for people to do specific jobs for stuff that we, we place on formal education, frankly, carries a lot of baggage with it. I mean, particularly in a, in a field like music, mm-hmm. right? Where, you know, look, composition is subjective. Well, that might be a big surprise to you. T- turns out it's real hard to like judge one person's idea of what's good and right from another in that field. And it seems very strange to me that we are, we're particularly when we're like hiring people for particular jobs in academia or like even applying for grants and stuff like that. I mean, Margaret, Margaret Leoy was talking about this, right? When Margaret Leoy first joined the Chamber of Music of America, she was concerned about the statistics around certain jazz grants because it was going mostly to, to white people, right? And it, it turned out that they, because they were going through the same, the normal kinds of channels that you go through when you're applying for grants, you know, universities mm-hmm. and various prestigious things that the people that you're trying to get the grants to, you know, one, don't have access to those kinds of things. And two, don't have the language or, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the likely the material means to actually be able to engage with these kinds of, you know, structures and opportunities. And I think that um, the, the way that we um, wait 
degrees in our field in, in terms of how we choose people uh, can often be very, very detrimental towards creating a kind of solidarity between, you know, a group of musicians who presumably all have the same interest that which is to, you know, make music and give it to people, <laughs> I would think. I mean, you know, it's a little, I mean, it's a little different, right, that when you're specifically trying to teach harp or something like that, but on a broad scale, I'm talking, right? Yeah, I mean, even the fact that, I mean, I, I've been very open about the, why I got the doctorate. It was so that I could eventually teach at the conservatory level and just have that in place to go, oh, by the way, I also have this higher degree. I didn't expect to get a job like that as soon as I graduated. That That wasn't the goal with it. And the fact that you have to have, or it is preferable to have a doctorate to go and teach harp where there's these wonderful fantastic musicians who have lots to offer and they're wonderful teachers but they only have an undergraduate it's it's like it's about your teaching quality it's about your playing quality it's not about how many pieces of paper you've collected however much all of us on the team have collected many pieces of paper it's not actually about that True. Actually, this is a, a good segue. Exploding the box wide open and, and going outside of our typical structure here. If you had a choice in highlighting a group or a composer or someone that we would like to feature, obviously they might not be uh, lots of papers assigned to their name. So uh, challenge us a little bit. Who would you like to bring onto the podcast in a dream world? Um, so if I were to make suggestions, my suggestion would be bring on people who are in your lives, who are, you know, doing things that are local, that are near to you. Um, that would be what I want in my heart of hearts. Uh, a buddy of mine from the jazz department has been making some really interesting music recently. His name is Ted Taffaro. He just released a record. Uh, he plays tenor. He works with a drummer a lot. David Aguila is a producer who works with him. Now, in my ego of egos, if I wanted to be really broad, what if you guys brought on like, what if you got like Adam Neely or somebody like that, like get like one of these kind of YouTube personalities? Oh, that would be cool. Oh, can we try and get Adam Neely? That would be awesome. I would love that. Actually. Um, you could also, the, the other guy I like, his channel name is Tantacruel. I think his name is, is Martin Curie is his name. He works on Audacity and MuseScore. Uh, he's like a super cool guy. I like a lot of what he has to say. So to wrap all of this up, a huge thank you and welcome to our new editor and audio engineer, Evan Henry. Uh, you should check out all of Evan's music. Honestly, it is some of the most beautiful and wonderful music I've ever had the opportunity to play and listen to. Uh, a really big thing is that Evan has just written his first opera, which uh, is going to be recorded and streamed on Marquee TV starting in the fall. So we will make sure that that appears somewhere in our social media so that you can all go and watch this wonderful show. And we look forward to ever, every so often being um, graced with your dulcet tones.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers Podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundweaverscast, and on Twitter at SWChamberCast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Quirrell. The music you heard in today's episode was composed by Evan Henry and performed by the Eastman School of Music Sinfonietta. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks.